the reality anchoring nature of a Christian worldview. And that sounds a bit philosophical, and that's because it is. Uh, normally what we do here at Eternal City Church is we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse by verse, chapter by chapter through uh, books of the Bible. And what normally would happen is we would be continuing through the book of Romans and we would finish Romans 15 tonight. That's what was on the schedule. But because I knew there would be guests here and because I didn't want you to have to break into the end of a letter without all that former understanding leading up to the end of Romans 15, I thought it helpful and the elders agreed that it would be okay if we did a kind of philosophical, biblical worldview type of message tying it into what you just witnessed with Gus and Kayla dedicating Caleb and Eva. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the reality anchoring nature of a biblical worldview. And so let's unpack the title real quick, and then we'll get into the anchor and the worldview. Reality is what we know of the conscious world. And so when you wake up from sleep, I don't know about you, I dream every night. And then sometimes I dream multiple dreams a night uh, because I wake up a lot during the night and reality hits me. Okay, I'm in my bed. I'm in Rosedale, which is in Verona, which is in Penn Hills, which is in Pittsburgh. I'm not off on some distant planet fighting space aliens like I thought I was. Reality dawns when I become conscious. Okay, and so the coffee pot is real when I load it with water and coffee beans and hit on and, and the drip and the smell comes. This is real. Okay? Avocado toast is real. How many avocado toast people in the crowd? A few of you. Okay. My hipsters. All right. Me too. I like it too. It's good. It's good stuff. Reality is your favorite Netflix show. Reality is you uh, having your alarm go off in the morning at whatever your ringtone is. Uh, but reality also includes what the Bible would call the unseen world, the unseen realm. Uh, in fact, the Bible asserts that God created both the visible and the invisible. And the argument would go something like this. Just because something's invisible to you doesn't mean it doesn't exist or it's not really there. And so I'll use a, a quick Tim Keller illustration. How many of you have gone camping? Put your hands up. No, you blessed people. Hopefully you've used an air mattress and not slept on the rocks and the roots. You ever do that? Pre-air mattress, you're like, oh, you wake up and your back hurts. So let's say that you were able to go to your tent and would you be able to look inside a little two-person tent and say, there is definitely no St. Bernard in there. You'd be able to tell for sure in reality whether there's a St. Bernard or not in the tent, Right? Now, here's a different kind of question. Let's say you went to the tent and looked in, and you would say something like, there is definitely not a noceum in there. How many of you have heard of a noceum? It's a bug. It's a real thing. And guess what? It's so small, you can't see it. <laughs> Thus the name noceum. You see, it would actually be illogical of you to look in that tent and conclude, because you can't see a noceum, there is definitely no noceum in there. You see, just because you can't see something doesn't mean its reality isn't there, real and existing. So the Bible asserts that there is an entire world invisible to the human eye, and only at certain times and in certain places and with certain people, God lets the veil drop. The invisibility cloak falls off and the real is seen. And so this also encompasses reality, the seen and the unseen. Now, what about the anchoring? Well, imagine a ship out in the ocean, maybe not so deep that it's miles and miles of depth because no anchor could go that far. But let's say maybe 25 to 50 feet, you could get an anchor, a big old anchor down that far. What do anchors do? Well, for ships specifically, they allow them to exist in one place and, and have stability, especially when, when the storms come and when the winds blow and when the waves are as big as buildings Hopefully that anchor allows that boat to stay in one place without toppling over or blowing all over the place, okay? Now, in our message, 
the reality anchoring is what the Bible offers us, an anchor for all of reality, both the seen and the unseen world. That's what the Bible offers us. And that's kind of how I want to talk with you this evening. Well, what's a worldview? Okay. At its most simple definition, a worldview is the way you view the world. Everybody has a worldview. Every single person who's alive views the world in a certain way. Here is a biblical definition from Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible. A worldview is a way of looking at reality, the basic assumptions a people have about the world. The basic assumptions a people have about the world. Here's a secular definition, meaning kind of neutral, non-spiritual, without religious overtones. This is from dictionary.com. A comprehensive conception or philosophy of the universe and of humanity's relation to it. Your concept of the universe itself and your relation to that universe. What do I have to do with Mars? Well, nothing, unless you're Elon Musk, right? (laughs) And and if you're Elon Musk, you have everything to do with Mars because that's your life ambition is to make it to Mars and colonize Mars. But for most of us, Mars doesn't make it into our conscious thinking ever unless we're reading or listening to a Musk uh, podcast or something. We we might imagine if we're watching a sci-fi movie, but for most of us, the reality of Mars out there or Jupiter or Saturn or even the Andromeda galaxy doesn't have much to do with you going to work tomorrow, right? But it's there and it's real and it's in existence. And here's here's something interesting. It exists whether you acknowledge it or not and whether you believe it's there or not. You might say, I deny Mars. Doesn't matter. It's there whether you deny it or not. And you see, this is how the Bible frames God and God being sovereign over all things. God says through his word, I exist, I am, I have created all things, I sustain all things, and whether you acknowledge me or not, I am, and I exist, and I am over you. Now, I know that's harsh for a lot of people to hear. You say, well, that's just your belief. And, and I would say yes and no at the same time. I would say this. If you were to say, well, that's just your belief, I would say, yes, it's my belief, but my belief is anchored in an external trustworthy source called the Bible written over 3,500 years ago, completed over 2,000 years ago, stood the test of critics for millennia, and is correspondent to archaeology, history, prophecy and its fulfillment, and internal manuscript coherence and consistency. And so, yeah, I I do believe that, but I believe it based on some solidness. And then I would have to ask you, O skeptic, who might challenge me, what do you believe about reality? How did we get here? Why are we here? What's wrong with the world? What's the matter with you, man? Girl, what happens after you die? Is there such a thing as love? And if so, how do you know? And and on and on, I could ask the worldview questions. All of these questions are worldview. And see, a coherent worldview is able to answer the biggest of life's questions. Not just philosophy class, but the Bible is able to answer all of these questions with great coherence and cohesion. Now, what I want to do is get into epistemology for one second. Just one second, please. Epistemology is the philosophy, the branch of philosophy that deals with how do we know what we know. That simple. Epistemology, how do we know what we know? In other words, how do we know something is true or not? That's epistemology. And biblical epistemology, if you would grant me 30 seconds, goes like this. The Bible claims for itself that it has ultimate authority in anything it speaks to and no other authority gets to check it. That's what the Bible claims. Now, when you would ask me, all right, Chris, then plainly, how do you know the Bible's true? It's an epistemological question. You know what I would say? In truth, the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. 
And now you're like, wait a minute, that's a hamster wheel, isn't it? Isn't that a circle? And, and I would grant you, yes, that is actually circular. But then I would then ask you a question. Tell me how you know what is ultimately true and where ultimate authority on reality comes from. And let's just imagine that you said, well, well, science. I believe that science has ultimate authority. And then I would say, well, how do you know, epistemology, that you know science has ultimate authority? And you would say, well, because of the scientific method, because of a hypothesis and testing the hypothesis, and then we have conclusions. Oh, so you're appealing to science to prove that science is true. That sounds like a hamster wheel, doesn't it? Or, or maybe you would say, well, because I have well-working reason, and, and I can take in reality with my own thoughts and my own thinking, and I can understand a view of the world because I reason. And then I would say, all right, well, how do you know your reason is true? How do you know that it's ultimately reliable? And you would say, well, because I've lived a life of thinking and my thoughts have led me in the right direction so far. And, and on and on, you would explain that basically your reason proves that your reason is reliable and has ultimate authority. And here's the deal, friends. Ready? Anything that claims to have ultimate authority on truth, if you bring anything in higher to prove it, then guess what? That thing becomes the ultimate authority. In other words, there is no way of escaping the circle because as soon as you try to appeal to something with higher authority, then that thing becomes the higher authority. Anything that claims to have ultimate authority must appeal to itself or it can't be ultimate. You with me? Okay, there's your epistemology class in one minute. Biblical epistemology. Okay, and so the Bible would claim for itself ultimate authority. Now, I know that's not very convincing. Okay, I get that like, okay, in a debate, you can't just mic drop them. Bah, I got you, you know, you, you can't do that. We need to have persuasive arguments given to us in order for us to believe a truth claim, okay? And so that's what I'd like to do now, is try to, uh, by God's help and grace, persuade you that the Bible has the most clear and the most compelling evidence of all the systems of thought and living and, and claims to reality out there, Okay? And I'm going to do this all within like 30 minutes. Pray for me. James N. Anderson is a Christian theologian, philosopher, author, and a professor. Okay? And he wrote a cool essay, a really tight, clear essay called Truth, Error, and Knowing. I would highly recommend you look that up. Truth, Error, and Knowing by James Anderson. He gives three I think, compelling ways that we can find out what is true. And now, now, if you've ever taken an epistemology class or you've ever read epistemology books, you know that there are thousands of theories of truth. I mean, you could read books upon books upon books upon books, and after putting down 10 books, you're more confused than when you picked up the first one. Okay? So these three, in my view, are very simple and very clear. And you're like, well, yeah, of course. All right, so here we go. Again, this is James N. Anderson. Number one, system. Realism. Realism. A proposition, a proposition would be a truth claim. God exists. Jesus Christ is God. Through Jesus Christ, God created all things. Okay, those are propositional truth claims. Okay? Realism. A proposition is true if it accurately de depicts or represents reality. Accurately depicts or represents reality. If it reflects the world as it really is. So if I was to say, that chair is blue. Unless you're colorblind in here, most people would be like, that doesn't reflect reality, and that doesn't cohere with what my eyes are telling me. But if I said, that is hunter green, most of you would be like, what are you, a designer? How do you know it's hunter green? It's just green, man. But it's green, definitely, right? Hunter green, we could debate on that. But the idea is, okay, he's telling the truth. I can see it. I can experience it. It coheres with what uh, my senses are telling me. That's true. That's a green chair. A classic statement of the realist view was provided by Aristotle. Here's Aristotle, okay? 
This is, this is a great quote. To say what is that it is not, or of what is, is not that it is, is false. While to say that what is that it is, and of what is not, it is not, is true. That's in metaphysics. Okay, in other words, there's an isness to reality, and what is, if it actually is, truth. It's that simple. But if you say what is is actually what's not, that's not true. Seems like a very simple way to find out what's true or not, right? Again, realism. You buy it. Seems pretty simple. To say that something is, but it actually is not, false. But to say that something is, and it actually is, truth. There's realism in metaphysics. All right, now, correspondence theory. Only two more, okay? So relax, we're going to get to the Bible. (laughs) Correspondence theory. The correspondence theory maintains that truth is a relationship between beliefs and facts. A belief is true if it matches up with the way things actually are. Let me read that again. Ready? Maintains that truth is a relationship between beliefs, I believe this, and facts. A belief is true if it matches up with the way things actually are. For example, the Bible would say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible would say that we've all inherited a sin nature from our first parents, Adam. And then, you know what the truth, the correspondence truth that's just thrown around? Nobody's perfect. Correspondence theory of truth. You see, the Bible gives total explanation and great theological grounding for why we could say, in truth, nobody's perfect. What other philosophical system or religious system can do that with such clarity and power and explanatory evidence? Now, this is just one, and we're going to do this for the rest of the message. Co- Here's the last one I want to do tonight. Ready? The coherence theory. Coherence theory. So remember, realism, correspondence, third one, coherence theory. It holds that truth is more like an internal feature of a belief system. So it's kind of internal to you. It's internal to a belief system, but listen to what is internal about it. A belief is true if it meshes consistently with one's other beliefs and ideas. It's true if it matches all the other beliefs inside of you. Okay, now, I would argue that one is less authoritative as the one that is, isness. But if you can have all three of those in place, I think you know that something's true. If the isness matches what is, if the way it is accords with, goes with reality, and then if the belief system matches all the other internal beliefs I have and the things I've experienced, okay, we know we're on to something here. If I have all three? So let's talk about now how the Bible would put all three together. A biblical worldview gives an account of all things as they are. Realism. How the Bible's beliefs correspond to the facts of the world and how the Bible's teaching coheres not only with reality, but with the whole Bible itself. Shall I read that again? A biblical worldview gives an account of all things as they are, realism. How the Bible's beliefs correspond to the facts of the world, correspondence. And how the Bible's teaching coheres with not only reality, but with the whole of the Bible itself. So let's ask some questions. I got 14 in 26 minutes. And I might give you some bonus questions if they come to mind, because sometimes that happens. Number one, why is there something rather than nothing? You got to ask that question if you're going to have a complete worldview. So what, what are we doing right now? We're trying to help you understand what is your view of the world. I mean, I've never thought about this before. I don't like this. Well, you're here and you might as well listen. Okay? Try to figure out right now if you have a coherent worldview. Have you asked the big questions? And then do you have satisfying answers for the big questions? And if you don't, friends, 
The Bible has a lot to offer you, <laughs> which I will show. Why is there something rather than nothing? And then on top of that, you could ask the question, uh, has anything ever came from nothing? Do we know anything in reality that spontaneously appears out of nothing? We do not. You know what the Bible would teach? That there is an eternal God without beginning who is outside of time, space, and creation itself. If you will, here's a circle called reality, and here's a circle outside of that reality called God. And he always existed. Nothing brought him into being. He always was. Therefore, nothing came out of nothing. God always was. No contradiction. And this being who always was, and yes, that's a category too big for human beings, eternality. Yet for most of us, I think we believe that when we die, something else is beyond death. We believe in some kind of eternity. For most of us, it's fuzzy and we don't quite know what's going to happen, but we believe in eternity after death. What about eternity before life? That's what eternity is. It's an arrow going both ways. And so what the Bible teaches is that God always was. In fact, one of his names is I am, which means I exist, period. Nothing is God dependent on, and all things in our reality circles, seen and unseen, are dependent on this one God. God is eternal, and he made all things, and all things depend on him. Now, let me give you uh, quick two other options that, in my view, are not as good as an eternal God. All right, maybe there was eternal matter. You know, maybe, maybe there was this really tightly packed molecule that always was, that never had a beginning. And then at some point in time, the molecule under intense pressure exploded and all things came into being. Ordered and reproducing and intelligent, and with such artistic preciseness. So let's weigh that with impersonal little chunk of matter one day, billions of years ago exploded, and all we know came out of that explosion. Or an eternal person with intellect and emotion and will and creativity created all things that we know. And not only that, the Bible would say this eternal person is a person and we are made in his image and so we are persons with mind, intellect, will, emotions. So what makes more sense, just logically speaking? Eternal little point of matter that one day exploded or eternal person that made us in his image? I'd say the Bible beats the explanation of the Maybe eternal energy. You know, energy always existed in some form, you know, just waving through the universe. And somehow that energy gathered into a point of such tightness and it couldn't hold itself in that central tightness and exploded in all things. It's basically the same argument as the eternal matter. But both the matter and energy are impersonal and they don't have design quality features. When has a rock ever made a beautiful painting? Never. But if you go outside and see a rock beautifully painted, you never imagine another rock did that or that it just spontaneously got painted, right? You're like, wow, some artist must have picked up this rock and spent a bunch of time on it. That just makes sense to you. But yet we think about the universe in totally bizarre ways, right? And I'm just asking you to think a little bit about the way you live your life and then take it up a level about ultimate reality. Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, the Bible would say that God is, he's eternally existent, he's the creator and sustainer of all things seen and unseen. Number two, what is humanity? Like, what is a human being anyway? The Bible would say that a human being is the highest created being in the universe. Did you know that? So rather than the alternative that we are in a long line of evolution from, you know, amoeba, little tiny specks of floating 
amoebas, and then we evolved over billions of years into these complex creatures, and now we're at the top of the food chain just waiting for something else to come to the top of the food chain. The Bible would say, no, you were made by God at one point in time, and he made you in his image, and no other creature, angelic or otherwise, animal or otherwise, fish or otherwise, bird or otherwise, reptile or otherwise, nothing else in all creation is as high as you because you are the only creature made in God's image. Isn't that amazing? And so what are human beings? They are valuable. And so the question uh, then I would ask is, number three, what gives human beings dignity, value, and worth? Why should we not kill other people? Why should we not steal from other people? Why should we not brutalize other people? Why should we not look down on other ethnicities? Why should we not think ourselves higher than other people? Like, why not? You do realize that if we are in a long line of evolutionary progression, then we literally came from a strong eat the weak background. And wouldn't it logically make sense that strong eating the weak is how we should live because that's how we got here anyway? Yet all of us know for strong people to oppress and brutalize weaker people is just wrong. How do you know it's wrong? How do you know it's wrong? I'm serious. Like, how are you going to ground that? What do you, what, I believe it's wrong. How do you know that your belief is true? Because I believe it circle. (laughs) Friends, do you realize the Bible grounds in the Imago Dei, which means the image of God, our dignity, value, and worth. I should not steal from you because you bear the image of God. And when I steal from you, it's as if I steal from God. Genesis 9 to Noah, uh, God said, listen, if anyone sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed because man is made in God's image. In other words, when you strike another human being and draw blood, it's as if you're striking God because only human beings are made in God's image. You see, friends, all ethnicities, all intellectual capacities, educated, uneducated, uh, blue collar, white collar, you know, high degrees, multiple degrees, no degrees, we're all equal under this image of God. There is no better only in our thinking. But see, the Bible would put us all in the same place. Image bearers. And that is why we have dignity, value, and worth. I would challenge you, come up to me and tell me how your view of the world makes more sense of why human beings have dignity, value, and worth other than being made in the image of God. Now, I'm not going to debate you. I'd just like to hear. I used to debate in my younger days. I'm not a debater anymore. It often doesn't get you anywhere. You just waste your time. But I'd love to hear from you if you have a better system that explains why human beings have value and why I shouldn't just take what you have other than you'll go to jail. Other than, well, it's wrong. Because then I'm going to have to ask you, well, how do you know it's wrong? So maybe I will debate a little bit. (laughs) It's still in there, deep inside. It's still in there. I would argue, friends, now this is, I'm going to roll a grenade out into the, into the crowd here. I would also argue that human beings inside the womb also have dignity, value, and worth. And it doesn't mean that as soon as they come out of the womb and take their first breath, now you're alive. Now you have dignity, value, and worth. Now you're a person. And now my question is, if you don't have the Imago Dei, underpinning womb life is life in the image of God, then how do you explain that it is life or isn't life? You see, the Bible and Christians have explanatory power for why we believe what we believe and why we then take the actions that we take on certain causes. No no Christian, no biblical Christian should be for abortion, by the way. None. None. Because there are multiple Bible verses, Psalm 139 being probably the most clearest, and maybe John the Baptist in in Elizabeth's womb, and he leaps for joy, and he's a person, and he can rejoice in the womb. Like, if that's not a person, what is it? 
And if you take the life of that person inside the womb, what are you doing? You see, no Christian should be for abortion. And you know why we can say that? We have the Bible to underpin that view. Direct text to issue. And then I would ask, well, what philosophical or religious system do you have that can give value to humans inside the womb and outside the womb? I would love to know. Number four, why do I exist? That's a big question. Why am I here? Like, why should I even get up in the morning? Because the Steelers, of course. I mean... (laughs) Okay, the, the Steelers give you some meaning in life. I'll give you that. When they win, it's, ha- it's, it's a good day, right? But man, ultimate meaning, football, I don't know, man. Seems a little weak. You say, all right, football and nachos and a soft pretzel. That's adding a little bit more value. You see, why are we here? Friends, did you know that the Bible is so clear on why you exist? And here's the answer. You were made to be in relationship with the eternal creator God, who is, as the Bible says, the creator of all good things that you know as good. You like mangoes? God's like, I did that. You like coconuts? Me again. You like sunsets and Caribbean water and coral and bright glowing fish at the zoo? Me again. You like marriage? Sometimes. But when it's good, God's like, I did that. When it's bad, Satan did that. And I cursed the relationship because of Satan and your sin. So don't blame me for that. And that's what he says. That's on you, man. (laughs) Anything good in our reality owes its goodness to God because he is the definition of good. And James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of heavenly lights of whom there is no shadow of turning. You like soft chairs rather than hard chairs? God made cushions. And he gave you one. You're sitting on it, right? The idea here is anything good God has given us and you have opportunity to be in relationship with him. But beyond just you get to have a relationship with the ultimate creator, you also get to be in right relationship with other people through him. I don't want to see hands, but if I said, how many of you have strained human relationships? All hands would go up. And then if I was to say, how many of them are in your immediate family? Probably all hands would go up. And if I said, how many of you fought with your spouse or kids today? (laughs) Right? And and so we get closer and closer. And then if if I said this, how many of you fought with yourself today? Be honest. Like you had an internal wrestle. We're, We're not even okay by ourselves. And so here, God says, you make right with me, and then I give the ability and the power to make right with all other relationships. And the promise is, I will one day make all relationships well, including the one you have with yourself. Why do I exist? You exist to know, love, and live for the creator and sustainer of the universe. That's why you exist. You exist to enjoy God through all his gifts and glorify him, which means acknowledge his goodness, acknowledge his person, give thanks to him, and that glorifies him. That's why you were made. And so if that's your purpose, which the Bible says it is, and you're living contrary to that purpose, do you realize that you're going against the design of the human being? Now, some of you are car people. And so imagine your car owner manual says five quarts of synthetic oil. And you're like, man, that stuff's expensive. Haven't you been to advanced auto parts? Pepsi is much cheaper. Five quarts of Pepsi? Way cheaper. And so you just dump that Pepsi on in your next oil change and you're driving maybe like one mile and and all of a sudden, what'd you do? You went against the design. And you wrecked your machine that was finely tuned and made for a purpose. And yet you do it every day when you're not living 
in the design of being in relation with God and living for his glory. All right, I got to move on. Why do I exist? To love God, enjoy him, glorify him. Number five. Why is it wrong for someone to harm you or for you to harm someone else? Why is that wrong? How do you know it's wrong to harm people? Well, we already touched on this, so I don't have to spend much time, do I? When you harm someone else, you are in a subway harming God because people are made in God's image. And so the reason you can say to people, you can't do that to me. What foundation do you have for that? You can't be rude to me. You can't treat me like that. You can't take that from me and on and on and on. Well, the reason is you actually can say that and should say that because the Bible says you're made in God's image. And to be rude in 1 Corinthians 13 is not loving. And the second greatest command is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so when someone's rude to you, short, snippy, they're not loving you. They're breaking God's command. Isn't that interesting? But guess what? How many times are you rude to other people? Ouch. How many times have you defamed someone? We don't like getting defamed, but man, we'll defame. And see, that, that proves that there is this internal morality sensor inside of you. Because when you're wronged, you can recognize it fast. But when someone says to you, hey, you did this, you're like, and you have all these reasons why it was not wrong. What is that? Well, the Bible will call that sin. You're broken. You have sin dwelling in you. And what it does is it seeks to defend your sin and it seeks to prop you up as righteous when actually you know you're not. But that's not actually answering the question. Why is it wrong for someone to harm you or do you evil? And why is it wrong for you to harm and do someone else evil? We're made in the image of God. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Number six, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with me? Why do I keep messing up and failing? Why is everybody messed up? Why is there no perfect people? Everyone knows it. Why is that? Well, because our first parents, Adam and Eve, according to Genesis 1 and 2, were created perfect without sin. And Genesis 3, a serpent comes along, Satan in the form of a serpent, and he deceives Eve. She disobeys God and then uh, assists her husband to disobey God as well. And then all of humanity found in those two individuals falls. And when that fallenness lives inside of them and they have kids, guess what they create? Fallen kids. When then those kids grow up and have kids, guess what they create? Fallen kids. And so as people have multiplied all over the earth since Adam and Eve, they've multiplied sinners. There is no other option. Ah, but there's one option. There was only one other person born sinless, other than Adam and Eve. Do you know what his name is? His name is Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible claims. And do you know why he was actually born sinless? Because the Bible says he was born of a virgin and there was no father involved. And so that means that the sin nature passes through the man. And so the man had to be out of the picture, but yet Mary, not contributing seed, and the Holy Spirit causing Jesus to be born minus a man didn't have that sin passed to him. And so the only other person born righteous, which is why in the Bible he's called the second Adam. And so why is everyone messed up? Well, the Bible says clearly it's Adam and Eve. And then when they have kids, they pass that sin nature. Some of you have heard it called original sin. They pass that sin on to all their descendants except for one, Jesus Christ. We'll talk about him in just a minute. Number seven, how do we know what a man and a woman is? Another grenade in our culture. Well, because the Bible clearly says in Genesis 1 and 2 that in the beginning, God created them male and female. There is a binary two categories. Just thrown out there. And by the way, up until about 2015, that was not a problem. 
And then after 2015 with the burger fell and now man into the 2020s, like to, to, to claim a binary gender, like burn him or her at the stake. But isn't it interesting that in an epistemological and an ontological way, everyone knows that there's only two genders. There's XX and there's XY chromosomes. And as Al Mohler said, if we dug up someone from 2020, if they died and we dug them up 100 years later, did you know that from that dead body, we could tell whether they were a male and female or female because of the chromosomes? They're either going to be XX or XY. In other words, the ontological reality of maleness and femaleness goes to the biological chromosome level and you can't get away from it no matter how hard you try. Why is that? In the beginning, God created them male and female. Now, how we treat people with gender dysphoria and how we treat people in our family who are wrestling with gender. Now, let me, let me just give you Christians, I'm one of them, some help here, okay? When you abandon a biblical worldview, which is anchoring reality, which is what I'm doing with you right now, I'm helping you to anchor the big questions. When you throw the anchor away, guess what? Everything's on the table. I could be a male, I could be a female, I could be a cat. And who were you to tell me otherwise? You see, there's no anchoring for reality. I'm Michael Jackson. No, you're not, bro. Yes, I am. Why are you? Because I believe it internally. And who are you to say anything about my internal reality? See, we live in a culture where whatever you believe on the inside, you press on other people on the outside, and that makes you the hero. You conform to my reality. Where the Bible says no, this is reality, and all people will conform to it, whether you like it or not. And I don't mean that uh, against the LGBTQ family. I'm just saying you can't get away from reality. It will come back to get you eventually. Okay? So that being said, I, I just gave you a, a helpful explanation here. Listen, when you take away the biblical worldview and you reject that, you reject God's design, you reject God, and you reject the Bible's anchoring of reality, then everything's on the table. How many genders are there? Infinite. Because who gets to say? It's not just three. It's not just him, her, and they. It's let's multiply the pronouns. Because who's to say? Right? It's, is it my opinion versus yours? It's just a matter of practicality. I mean, we only have so much you know, room on the list here. Let's do 50 because any more, we're going to take up more sheets of paper. I mean, I can't only fit so many genders on your, on your driver's license here. You know, come on. Is it just a practical thing that makes it? You see what I'm saying here? Unless we have the Bible anchoring what is, isness, anything's on the table, friends. Why can't a man be with a little boy? Well, because right now, culturally, that's unacceptable. But who's to say in 10, 15 years, it won't be? Am I right or am I wrong? If culture and what's hot in culture gets to determine what's right and wrong, wasn't slavery a beautiful thing like 300 years ago? You see, all of you would say no, but the predominant culture said yes. But see, the Bible according to 1 Timothy 1.10, would say man-stealing is wrong, and that's what America's race-based slavery was based on, stealing men from other lands and bringing them and enslaving them and owning them. You see, the Bible can ground why slavery is wrong. Can your worldview ground it? That was a bonus, by the way. There was, there'd be one in there at least. All right, I got two minutes and I got too many questions to go here. So, number eight. I probably won't get through them all, so relax, okay? Just... We could talk afterward. Some of you are getting scared. Let me just pick the best. Let me see. Here we go. I know I've done things that are wrong. And I feel guilty. What do I do to alleviate my shame and my guilt? How do I get rid of it? How do I get the stain off of my soul? Did you know the Bible actually has great clarity for the answer of that question? Now, for a lot of people, alcohol is a great way, or is it? How many alcoholics do you know that can't seem to numb away the pain no matter how much they drink? How many addicts do you know that can't shoot enough, that can't snort enough, that can't smoke enough, can't pop enough pills? The pharmaceuticals aren't helping, are they? 
Did you know that the Bible says that there is one perfect one who didn't have guilt or shame, and he didn't wrestle with fear, and that one on the cross, this is what the, the Roman cross is all about, he absorbed the guilt and the shame of all the people who would ever believe in him. And so what he does is, when you come to Jesus, God become man, living perfectly without a sin nature, living according to God's standard perfectly, willingly going to the Roman cross as a substitute, on that cross gets treated like he lived my sinful life. My guilt upon his shoulders. My shame upon his shoulders. And then you know what I get after I trust in him? I get his guiltlessness. I get his shamelessness. And he says, you are guilt-free. You are shame-free. Now your task is to walk in the reality of that. Oh, and by the way, when you sin against me, which you will probably tonight, I just want you to confess that and I will be faithful and I will be just to forgive you that sin and then to re-cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Every time. All you got to do. You just confess that sin to me, and every time, without fail, I will forgive you and rewash you every time. That's what you do with your guilt and your shame. And so, friends, we who've lived horrible lives, where if it was to come out in biography form, we would never come out of our house again. Friends, we can not only come out of our house, but we can tell people the dirt because that person is no longer. This person is washed and new. By the way, that's what baptism's about. It's the old you dead, the new you up out of the water alive, cleansed, resurrected. That's what you do with your guilt and shame in a Christian worldview. Without a Christian worldview, you tell me how you deal with it. Is the drinking helping? Is the therapy helping? I mean, I'm sure it helps a little bit. One more and we're done. What happens after death? How about that one? The Bible is very clear about what happens after we die. It's not the end. It's actually the beginning. So this temporary life, which spans if you are, we'll just use the word lucky. If you're lucky, 90 years, maybe into your late 90s. But man, who wants to live in their late 90s? Like, dude, I'm 41 and I'll get up in the morning. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I can't imagine doubling that. <laughs> I love you. I'm just saying. My, per my perspective, my truth, my truth. Just kidding. I love you. What happens after we die? It's a good question. Well, the Bible says that all depends on what you do with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not only the creator according to John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1, but he's also the sustainer of all things, including the breath in your lungs. We sing a song here called, It's Your Breath in Our Lungs, So We Pour Out Our Praise. That's a real thing. The very breath is God's that he gives to us. And the, the question is, what do you do with Jesus? And, and, and for some of you, you're like, well, isn't he more like Thor? He probably wasn't as big as Thor, but also he was not a myth. Well, how do you know he was not a myth? How do you explain, friends, the millions of Christians worldwide and over centuries? And then furthermore, how do you explain the churches and the people that worship in churches all over the globe since zero on the calendar, which by the way, before Christ is how the calendar turns, and as much as we try to change BC, oh, that's not what it means. Well, it did for a long time until you didn't want Christ in there. How would you explain the churches and the people in those churches worshiping for over 2,000 years? And how do you, I'm, we're a part of a church planning network. Do you realize that new churches are being planted all over the globe almost every day? How do you explain that? No one's planting churches worshiping Thor. We might make a movie about them, eat some popcorn and enjoy that. But no one's going to sing songs to Thor, right? And so, look, friends, there is a lot of reality in the Christian worldview that you just haven't thought about. 
Why would people like me dedicate an entire work week and plus overtime to helping people grow in their faith? Why would I do that? Because I believe that that's the best thing for you. And it's actually what God has asked me to do. And so how can I not do that and go do something else? So after you die, it all depends on what you do with Jesus Christ. If you have taken him for who he claims to be. Where do I find out who he claims to be? You find that out in the Bible. The Bible claims that Jesus is God and that he himself said that the whole 39 books of the Old Testament are about me. And then we know that the um, 27 books of the New Testament are about him. That's clear. What is it all about? The cross is the centerpiece of human history. The cross is the place where our sin is dealt with, where God's justice is mediated, where sin is punished, where Satan and death are defeated, and where a door opens up into the eternal. Eternal life, friends. Did you realize that the Bible says at the name of Jesus on judgment day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. And my encouragement would be, look, wrestle with that now before it's too late. Like, I cannot manipulate anyone in here into believing. I used to believe that when I was a new Christian. It was my job to kind of manipulate you into believing. I don't believe that's my job anymore. My job is to, with persuasion, with love and prayer, present the truth to you, and then you and God need to wrestle with that. And so realize, I love you, you've heard the truth. Like, you cannot make an excuse now on Judgment Day. I I didn't know. He's going to be like, man, Chris told you. (laughs) Like, I listened from afar, or maybe he's dimensionally very close, probably more the reality. I heard. You want to replay the tape? And there you are sitting in the green chairs. You're like, dang it. Dang it. (laughs) Friends, my encouragement for you is entrust yourself and your eternity to Jesus. He will save all those who call upon him for salvation. And for those of us who believe, that's why we gather joyfully on Sundays and sing his praise and pray to him and dig into his word. And we take communion to celebrate what Jesus has accomplished. Now, listen, I I ran out of time and I tend to do this, okay? Uh, my, my aim was to pull up a bunch of Bible verses like, and go through these, but we, we just don't have time, okay? So here's what I want to do. I want to leave you with this. We're going to take communion now as one church. This is what we do every week at Eternal City. The reason we do this is because Jesus said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is an act of worship that we do. We are saying something about Jesus' death. And when we take these juice and cracker elements into our bodies, we are saying symbolically, Jesus died for me. Now, friends, you know tonight where you're at with Jesus. Only you know. I don't know where you're at. Your wife doesn't know where you're at. Your husband doesn't know where, your kids don't know where you're at. Your friend, you know where you're at with Jesus. And my encouragement was, would be get right with him. 